Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Tom Morgan Rodsmith's evolved from a dream of Tom's while owning the R.L. Winston Rod Company from 1973 to 1991. He always wanted to build a limited number of superior graphite rods for appreciative anglers. Rods not limited to cost or materials. Rods that were fine-tuned until their actions were perfect. Sadly, Tom passed away in 2017 of pneumonia. While he is no longer with us, his legacy in rod design will continue to touch anglers for generations to come, thanks to Matt Barber and Joel Daub, who bought the company before Tom's passing. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss Tom, his passion for quality rods, bamboo rod building, and more. If you've ever wanted to try building your own quality bamboo rod, or if you've taken our bamboo rod building class with Bob Clay, you won't want to miss this episode. And if you haven't taken the masterclass yet, you might want to after listening in. Find out more in the masterclass section of anchoredoutdoors.com. Use code ANCHOREDLISTENER20 to take 20% off. We'll just keep that between us here. That's ANCHOREDLISTENER20 to take 20% off. This might be a slightly confusing episode for some people because we're here to talk about Tom Morgan with Matt Barber. And Joel, what's your last name? Daub. Why are we in the situation where I'm speaking to both of you guys? Yeah, so we're Joel and I own Tom Morgan Rodsmiths, and we've owned it for five years now. And the company, though, is coming up. We're on our 25th anniversary this year. So the company's been going along for 25 years. And Joel and I took the helm five years ago, learned under Tom and Jerry, both. Jerry is Tom's wife. Um, and then sadly, Tom passed away about four years ago. And uh, we're still going. So what's the story there? How did you meet Tom? So uh, we met Tom. Tom, you know, owning Winston for about 20 years was somebody that Joel and I both looked up to and, and followed his story. And um, it became known that he and Jerry were, it was time to retire and time to sell the company and they were looking around for buyers. So really we met them through that piece of just uh, trying to get to know them and trying to learn a little bit more about what it would mean for us to buy the company. And then, you know, we developed a friendship through that. That took almost a year of, um, just due diligence and discussions and are we going to be able to do this and them 
kind of thinking whether they wanted us to do it. And um, yeah. Now, obviously, I feel really horrible that I never was able to get Tom on the show. Uh, but I do want to speak about him a little bit, if that's okay. For sure. Tell me about him. He was a fishing guide. So he grew up, his, uh, his parents were in L.A., and his younger brother had very bad asthma. So they wanted to move somewhere that could help his asthma condition. So they relocated to Ennis, Montana. They actually built a, a small hotel there called the L Western that's still there today. And Tom started guiding when he was a teenager. And so he would take people fishing on Odell Spring Creek and the Madison River um, as a young man. So people would come and stay there and ask for the kid to take him fishing. And he became a pretty well-known guide in the area and owned the tackle shop in Ennis. And eventually, one of his clients staked him in buying the R.L. Winston Company. So he ran that for a couple of years in San Francisco. Uh, okay. Wow. When was that? That was in 1971. So he ran them for a couple of years in San Francisco and then moved to Twin Bridges, Montana. And so that's kind of the Winston that we know now is the Montana Winston, the green graphite rods. That all happened during Tom's tenure was the development of the graphite. Um, and then Bracky came on, became one of his partners to build the bamboo. And Tom ran that company for about 22 years, sold it to the current ownership. And then this really is his company post Winston custom rods. He famously said he wanted to build rods regardless of how much they cost or how much time they took to make. Yeah. And so sadly, though, after selling Winston, um, Tom developed MS and pretty quickly uh, became quadriplegic. And about the same time, he met his wife, Jerry, and the two of them decided that they were going to start Tom Morgan Rodsmiths. And the story there is that Tom had all of the tapers and designs for rods in his head and all the connections through the industry through his time at Winston and had ideas for how to make the best rod possible, but he didn't have the hands to do it. So he taught his wife, Jerry, and a small team of craftsmen and women uh, who worked out of their house how to build. And Tom was in a power wheelchair or in his bed often with glasses that he could look up through the mirrors and see you at the end of the bed. Um, so he, he, for about 20 years, he, he lived with MS and um, ran Tom Morgan Rodsmiths. The, the story of the company is almost as much a story of Tom and Jerry's relationship. She was not a fisherman, not interested in fishing, um, never a fly caster. She just, and still isn't. But she was a craftsman and an artist. And so Tom taught her with his words. And like Matt said, he had fashioned these mirrored sunglasses so he could lay and look at 90 degrees out. And he walked her through which tools, descriptions, you know, kind of everything with his his words, you know, not able to tactically grab, hold, give those kind of things. So the customer didn't care necessarily about Tom building the rod, but he wanted he or she wanted Tom's tapers. Is that yeah, right? You know, that was kind of a misconception when we bought the company. People said, oh, well, since Tom's not building the rods anymore and we had to politely find a way to say Tom never built those rods. He never cast them. He never um, he had friends along the way that were expert casters that would come out to his house and cast in the driveway and he would watch the action and he would he they knew what he was after, um, you know, a soft tip uh, if if you think of older rods like a Sage LL or, um, you know, those original Winston green sticks with a soft tip and, and that load deeply, that's what Tom was after. So they could give him feedback about how the rods felt. Um, and then he would go back and alter the taper and then they'd redo a, a prototype. But yeah, he, he, he had an idea what the rods needed to look like and, and what the components needed to be, but he never built them. Yeah. I would say his absolute dedication to quality was like one of the overriding um, influences of the rods. So he still inspected everything. He still oversaw everything. And I think Tom, maybe more than anybody, just had a very, very fine eye for details and quality. And especially in the custom rod segment, he just thought nothing should go out unless it was good enough. And the, the distance between your very best and your very worst work should be very, very close. Because that was one of my big questions for you guys is how do you take over a business and how does somebody sell a business when it's built with their name? It's almost like when the maker's gone, so is that rod. But in thinking about it, that's not the case, is it? Yeah. And I think, well, two things. I think because the rods had always been made by other people, then we could step in as apprentice craftsmen, Joel and I, and 
continue that legacy and learn as they had taught people that had come through their shop. And we followed their recipe for rod building. Um, so I think that was, yeah, that was really important on our end was just to, to see quality through their eyes and see what they wanted. But to your point, you know, we've seen some companies that have been bought by bigger rod companies or big conglomerate outdoor companies kept the name, but really lost the soul of that company. Um, and Tom and Jerry had some buyers that came through looking to buy the company that wanted to do just that. They wanted to be the next fly shop rod, make, you know, 20,000 rods, move production overseas, that kind of thing. And they actually said no to a couple of buyers that were looking to do that. So we had a vision of you know, a small rod shop, you know, where our family kids were running around the shop and we were able to keep it here in Bozeman. And they had a vision for what their eventual buyers would look like. And I think that was where that year of kind of going back and forth, um, we landed on each other, we, them, and them on us. Yeah, it sounds like it. So what's the secret then with this? Do you just have to keep your tapers closely to your chest, guard them with your life? You know, it's funny. I think we talk about this sometimes. It's uh, it's uh, it's one of those sayings, you know, the sum is greater than the parts. And I think the way we make fly rods or the way we learn it from Tom and Jerry, it's just very detail oriented. It's very time consuming. And I, I think we had a, some friends who said, well, why wouldn't one of the people that knows how to work with them now just go build the rods on their own. And Tom's answer to that was like, good luck. First of all, there's not that much money in it. And secondly, to be that detailed in every step along the way, that's the only way you get the final product. If you sacrifice along the way because you're in a hurry or you have to get rods out or you don't have quite the right part or it doesn't look quite the right way, those are all things along the way that are really easy to do when you're under the pressure of making a lot of rods or making them at a certain price point. And that dedication to every step along the way creates the rod. Yeah. So one example, you know, so Tom really was an adherent to other than the cork coming from Portugal in our graphite rods, 100% of every other component part is either made by us in the shop or local machine shops in Montana or other shops in the United States. So he was, he was a firm believer in that bullseye approach of production. Keep it close but no overseas component parts made and nothing mass produced. So we know on a first name basis, the person who makes our stripping guides, the person who makes our real seat hardware, we turn our own wood. Um, so I think that part, it would be hard to replicate on a mass scale if somebody were to try to do it on their own. And then just the time it takes, you know, our, our handles are painstaking. It takes us a week to to go through a batch of rods, putting the handles on and in a mass produced rod shop, those are pre-made handles and they're just epoxied on and on to the next step. So as Joel said, you know, Tom would say, great, anybody can do this. They just, I don't know if they have the time to slow down and do it that way. How big is a batch of rods? Um, so we, we make a couple hundred rods a year. So when we talk about rods going through each station in a week, you know, it's between five and 10 rods moved from one station to the next each week. Um, as opposed to, you know, companies that are making 10, 20, 30,000, um, rods that, you know, the, the attention to quality, we know every rod it has, it would say the customer's last name on it. And we refer to the rod by the customer's last name. So it's, you know, the Jones rod is moving from handling over to handle shaping or from handle shaping over to wrapping. And, um, so we still know each customer and we know in each rod kind of takes on a personality. Very quickly take on a personality in our shop. You know, the Smith rod or the Jones rod, or, and some of them are very easy through the process and some struggle with different places and different parts. And it makes me smile a little bit when you think about it, because our business is completely not scalable. And we've been told that by many MBA types. It is the opposite of the modern company that can be scaled, blown up and sold. Yeah. And that's because the way we make rods is the most complicated way we can do it. <laughs> now, wait, before I start asking you my other questions about bamboo versus graphite, how much is one of your bamboo rods? So our rods, uh, Tom's philosophy was to pick one price for the rods. Our, our bamboo rods are 4000 and our graphite rods are 1495 And then however a customer wants to customize it, the handle shape, the calligraphy, the uh, color of the blank, all of those pieces, whether it's two-piece or four-piece, you know, uh, length, weight, there's no a la carte add-ons. So that that's the price for however we choose to build it together. Mm -hmm. The way he said, this is the best stripping guide for any rod. So every rod gets that guide. 
there is no a la carte choice where you pay more for a better stripping guide or you pay more for a better guide set or a certain type of wood. It's just flat. And it doesn't matter if it's seven feet or nine feet. (laughs) It's just all the same price. So did he do graphite rods as well? Did he build them? At the beginning of the company, uh, Tom Morgan Rodsmiths actually started with only graphite rods. So oh. they were they were working with Gary Loomis, as you mentioned earlier. Um, Gary did the rolling of the blanks and helped them with some of that design work. And then um, they started with the graphite. And eventually they added fiberglass and bamboo as the demand was there and as customers wanted um, wanted those rods as well. So graphite by volume is probably 90% of what we build are our graphite rods. Bamboo rods take about 80 hours per rod. So we build about two dozen bamboo rods a year and that's it. So our our numbers are pretty low in terms of volume. It still is a full-time job to get those 24 out in a year, but graphite is really the bulk of what we, we build each year. Right. Okay. So do you sell them in shops or just through your website direct? We're almost hundred percent direct. We have a couple of partners here in Montana where we uh, we have rods in their shop, but for the most part, we're a direct consumer brand, and that's another thing that's a little different about what we do. Although I think we're seeing more direct consumer in the fly rod segment now, but historically, everybody has sold through through shops, and for us, it just doesn't quite work because we can't support a distributor network the way one of the larger makers would, and we also the way our margins work and just the cost that goes into each rod, it doesn't it's not as attractive for shops. And that was a big thing for Tom, that because we sell direct to the customer, we can use much higher quality component parts um, because we're not trying to have a rod that sells at wholesale and then again at retail. Um, so we can use that process to, to spend more on our component parts and, and have a nicer rod. And now I may have missed this, but did he own Winston solely? Was he a sole, the sole owner of Winston? So he had he had partners. So Glenn uh, Glenn Brackett was a, was a partner of his. I, I have to be honest. I don't know kind of percentages of or, or how that worked or if there was investment behind it. But I know that he and Glenn were partners. Um, and then and then, yeah, he went you know, independent. Boop. Yep. Yeah. So after uh, selling Winston, you know, there was uh, probably enough fodder for a whole nother podcast of years. But there was that the whole episode where Glenn worked for Winston and then went off and started Sweetgrass Rods and you know the, the Boo Boys that stayed in in Twin Bridges and started um, started Sweetgrass. So that that's kind of where, where they evolved after the sale, and then Tom went off on his own and started Tom Morgan Rodsmiths. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, all right, I would like to talk a little bit about some of the other things that you guys sell, because that's really how I learned about you. I mean, I knew of Tom Morgan. I'd, I'd heard about him for years, but or about the business for years. But it wasn't until we did our Bob Clay Bamboo Rod Building Masterclass that I really learned about the hand mill. Mm-hmm. And it is incredibly popular. It's It's revolutionary. Can you tell those of us who don't know much about rod building, what exactly it is and why it's so special? Um, yeah, so the the Morgan Handmill, um, as you probably are starting to get a sense of Tom in his as a quadriplegic, I, I really think his brain accelerated and his creativity and this engineering side of his brain took off. And he went to a number of people, Bob Clay and Pear Brandon, and talked about this better way to plane bamboo. So um, for folks that don't know, and, and a lot of people don't, but bamboo is made in triangles. And traditionally, it's 60-degree triangles, and six 60-degree triangles make up the blank. And traditionally, people would use a planing form where they would plane one side of that triangle and then flip the strip over and plane the other. And Tom believed that it was less accurate and that it could move around in the planing form and that there was a better way. So he envisioned flipping that strip on its back with the enamel side down, setting a taper, and then planing down that strip at 60 degrees on both sides simultaneously. And what it's done is there's certainly people with planing forms that make near-to-perfect rods, but they need that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of experience to get there. And what Tom did is he shortened that learning curve quite a bit with the, with the Morgan Handmill. He shortened it for people that are beginning builders, but then you take someone like Bob Clay or Pear Brandon that builds on the mill as well, 
as a master builder, it just helps them to repeat their process. It takes a lot of the fussiness out of it. And, uh, you know, I think they're pretty wed to it now that they, now that they build with it. So yeah, certainly it's another part of our company. We, um, teach classes on bamboo building in the shop using our hand mill. And then, a, a part of our sales comes from selling that hand mill equipment, um, to hobby builders who might build one or two rods a year on up to, um, major rod shops that have it, you know, in there as part of their production. Yeah. It causes some serious discussion in our, in our class community. Yeah. That, that it was a, a specific way to be is using our hand mill. Well, just people wanted them. I think they're expensive, right? They are. Yeah. They're about $3,500 for the, for the mill. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's about a thousand dollars for a set of planning forms, good set of planning forms. So I guess it depends, you know, for someone who's going to, again, maybe build a couple of rods here and there, you know, our recommendation would be team up with somebody else who has the equipment and drop a six pack of beer on their workbench and, and share. Um, but, <laughs> These are the discussions uh, I'm talking about in the community. Yeah. <laughs> Should yeah. I do yeah. it? Am I building enough? Does anyone have one for sale? Does anyone have one for loan? So are there any other tools that you guys sell that maybe a lot of us don't know about? You know, I think I'm trying to think of other things we do. There, there is a lot of tooling around the hand mill. So there are some disposable parts that support that. We do, we I kind of have some hobby builders that we help out. We occasionally sell fiberglass blanks, although that's fewer than it used to be. We're keeping more of the blanks ourselves to build rods now. We don't sell graphite blanks. We need all the blanks we get to make rods just based on the demand that we have. Um, and I wanted to add just real quick to the hand mill. I think one of the things that maybe lost in this is we, Matt and I just learned that Tom had this idea 18 years before he made the prototype. And, and I think it's a really nice commentary on Tom that for 18 years, he kicked this thing around and eventually decided, I don't know if Bob told you the story, but the story I'd heard from Bob is that he flew Bob down to Montana so he could be his hands and drill holes where he told him to drill holes. So he never touched or used this thing, but for 18 years, kicked it around in his head about what it would be like. And all of his friends said it would never work. This, you know, it's, you're never going to make it. It's never going to work, blah, blah, blah. And, and even Jerry, his wife, said, maybe we'll sell 40 of these and get our costs back. And now there are probably about 600 worldwide, Matt, yep. um, in the community that are being used. And it's really one of two ways to make a bamboo rod. So it's a remarkable story of its own, just this tool. Yeah, he's a vi- he was a visionary, huh? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he the the story we hear all the time is, you know, you ask this about, you know, keeping tapers secret and keeping, you know, these things. Tom would spend two, three hours, somebody would call up and ask him about bamboo rod making and whether it was using planing forms or the Morgan hand mill. He was just a wealth of information and he really believed in just sharing it. He didn't keep things close to the vest and he didn't, you know, try to be proprietary about his parts and pieces. He would tell you straight up what temperature he cooked the bamboo at and down to what glue he used and everything in between. And he just believed if people took enough time, they could build the same quality rod. And, you know, there's no sense in keeping secrets around it. Right. So have either of you built a bamboo rod? Oh yeah. No, it's uh, it's something we're doing in the shop every day. You know, the, the other part about it is different than maybe like Bob Clay takes an order and then he sees it through from the initial calm, you know, as it comes out of the ground on through to the finished rod that he hands off. And since Tom's design for, or or kind of set up for the shop was a little different. um, We, there's no one person that builds any one rod in our shop from start to finish. So there are five or six people um, with their hands on every single rod at different steps, you know, so I may be on Friday, I was planing strips for bamboo. Um, and this weekend I was wrapping a bamboo rod and Joel on Friday was coating a bamboo rod and coating the wraps. And then on Monday he'll be buffing the blank. So, um, there are, our, our rods are built by a team. That makes sense. Now you may have already answered this, but where are your blanks rolled? So Tom had the idea. He he bought the mandrels um, again in his adherence to the U.S. He bought them in California um, and designed the patterns. And then we've had different people. So Gary Loomis rolled them for a while. Kerry Berkheimer has rolled blanks for us, and Mike McFarland is currently rolling the graphite blanks. Gotcha. Oh, great! So it's all done in America, which is a challenge. I mean, we haven't really talked about this, but. Matt talked about this a little bit with our vendors. So um, everybody's domestic, but they're all kind of like Tom was or like we are. They're all, you know, small shops. 
and it's not it's not easy to get blanks rolled domestically right now. There just aren't a lot of, of domestic rollers that have capacity. You know, most of the large companies have their own facilities, um, but we've worked pretty hard to try to find people that can work with us and and just shipping mantles back and forth is tough. R and D can be tough when you don't roll your own, but you know, for us as a really small shop, it's just not viable to roll our own blanks. So we have to have a lot of trust and, and spend a lot of time working and developing relationships with our rollers so we get the quality that we need and we get the, the, the desired product. And that's been a big lesson for us. You think a blank is a blank, and we certainly have learned that it's not. What's the biggest difference between a blank rolled by um, the Loomis factory, which I've been to, sorry, let me rephrase that, by Gary Loomis's new factory, um, and and Carrie's factory, which I've also been to, versus one of these, um, I don't want to throw any brands under the bus, but overseas, you know, um, mainstream brands. What's the difference between the blanks? I think, you know, the difference, just like anything, when things are made in small numbers and they're made by people that, you know, we know by name, you know, when their quality is higher. So the, the, the quality control when you're shipping a batch of 50 blanks versus a batch of 500 blanks, you're able to inspect each one. Um, we're able to, we go through each one and look at it for finish. We sand and prep in our own shop and then do the coating in our own shop of those blanks. Um, and then a really, another unique thing that Tom really wanted. So we deflect every single blank. We hang it on a deflection board and then we hang a weight from the tip of that blank. And we have a really narrow window for acceptability on those blanks. So we put the weight on it and in a nine, you know, a five weight butt should come down to a certain place on that scale. And if it's not within a, you know, a really tight tolerance uh, margin of error, then we reject that blank. Um, and I think if you're dealing in numbers that are, you know, adding a zero or two zeros to what we do every month, um, it's impossible. It wouldn't be it wouldn't make sense for timing to sit with every single blank hang a weight on it and then reject or keep that blank we also record that deflection so that if that customer then breaks a tip down the road um, we can match that tip exactly and i think that's something um, that that is also pretty unique so to to sum it up i think it's just because of our small volume we're able to both cosmetically and because of deflection accept or reject blanks that in mass produced, you know, if I'm getting them in a shipping container from overseas, I don't think you're able to go through that level of quality control. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. So something that I always find interesting when I read Facebook posts or forum posts about people trying to decide which rod to get is the weight on the warranty. So many people will put so much attention on <clears throat> excuse me, on the warranty. How do you guys operate with warranty being such a small company? Well, I, I think there's a couple of advantages of being a small company when it comes to warranty claims. So Tom always said the rod tells the story. And and we've talked about how all of our rods take on personalities pretty quickly. And we talk to all the customers. So our warranty basically is time and materials if it's been stepped on. If it's anything that looks like it could be a problem with us, we just make a new rod or make a new section. And we kind of handle it almost on a on a, a, a la carte basis, you know, one off. It just depends what happened. And we could do that because we don't make a lot of rods. So we don't have a blanket policy of an administrative cost or a card that gives you a free rod once or, or something like that. I think that we're lucky, too, because most of the people that buy our rods are experienced. We don't get a lot of like, you know, silly breaks, I, I call them. You know, people tend to treat them like like they should be treated. And for that reason, you know, usually when a rod gets stepped on, the person tells us because they know us and we tell them yeah, or we, we see it looks like there's a boot mark on on the other side of this break. So, you know, it appeared to us that it, that it was broken by you stepping on it, you know, and if it's something around a ferrule or it looks like something came loose or anything like that, then we just take care of it. How can you tell if it's been hit by a fly? Mm. I think that's a you, so you look at the fracture. Yeah, I, you, I, yep. Yeah, you can you can usually see a dent or scratches around it. But, you know, back to your point about warranty, we're in the business of, you know, knowing each of our customers. A lot of our business comes from repeat customers who have had a good experience and choose to buy another rod from us. We're not going to sit and get in a wrestling match with somebody. If they swear that they were casting and the rod broke in the middle of the blank, um, 
you know, if we think it was a fly, we'll usually tell them, but if it, we'll just fix it. You know, if it, if it comes down to needing to fix it, we'll fix it and do the right thing and then move on hoping that, you know, they become a lifelong customer. Are most brakes in the tip or in the middle of the rod? Uh, I would say most accidental brakes are in the tip from a car door or the dog or my wife left mine on top of the truck uh, at the put in <laughs> when we were loading the boat back up and then I pulled out into the road and it shot off in. Um, so by volume, I think most are tip brakes. Uh, if it breaks in the butt, I think that's where you see like a seven or an eight weight and someone grabs above the handle and just changes that that force point on the rod and it breaks just up and you can tell they kind of did it. Um, but usually the butt is so strong that that it's going to break up towards the tip. Coming up, Matt and Joel share the challenges of bamboo rod building and their philosophy on tried, tested, and true. Don't forget to head on over to the masterclass section at anchoredoutdoors.com and use code ANCHOREDLISTENER20 to take 20% off. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So every single bamboo rod that I have has got a second tip. And I'm assuming it's because they're prone to breakage in the tip. Knock on wood, I haven't broken one yet. But what's the history behind that? Do people still do that because they are so prone to breakage? Or is it because it's just a historical thing? Yeah, so I I think it's tradition. You know, I think that we had matched tips because there was no FedEx when we started making bamboo rods, right? Nowadays, it's much easier to replace them. But I think that some of bamboo is nostalgia. You know, it's the history of fly fishing. And I think people are used to that, um, having matched tips. I think there's something in the art of making a bamboo rod, too, of having two tips that are exactly matched. You know, that's hard to do. You, you wrap the first tip and it's 45 minutes, maybe. And the second tip, maybe two or three times as long because you're matching everything. At least what we do when we make match tip rods, every wrap has to be the same width. Every wrap has to be the same number of wraps. Every wrap has to be in the same position on the blank. Like It has to be a mirror image. And so I think there's something about that that just talks to the craftsmanship that goes into the rod as well. I think also to your point, April, um, historically, the other thing is a lot of makers would make a wet fly tip that might be a little bit stiffer for throwing um, and swinging wet flies. And then they would make a dry fly tip that was a little bit softer. Um, So there were makers that would make two different tips for two different actions. Um, And then to Joel's point, they would make the second tip because if you did break it, um, you know, you were often out on a trip and, and you couldn't replace it. Um, but as far as breakability goes, we think that bamboo is actually stronger than graphite. Um, those impacts from the flies, you don't get those stress fractures across the blank like you do in graphite. And we've even, you know, messed around with some of the, uh, cosmetic blemish blanks in our shop and bent them over the workbench or stepped on them. And I know that they last a lot longer than my graphite rod would if I put it through the same paces. Yeah. That's why it's so interesting to me. Why do they not offer a second tip? with graphite rods or historically, why didn't they? Is it just because they're so modern? I I think it's something that we're really passionate about. I think that graphite rods in some ways are disposable. You know, there's people that buy them, fish them for a season or two, the latest, greatest, newest model with a new color comes out. People get rid of it, sell it used, or it, you know, goes in the closet. And unfortunately, I think people treat bamboo or sorry, graphite rods as a disposable commodity. And we really think of our rods as we encourage people to put their name on it so that when they hand it down to their son or daughter, it's got their name on it and it's something special. And for that reason, you know, we do do make second tips if a customer requests it. And we have a number of customers that'll say, 
please make mine, put a second tip in there. And I think it's because of that longevity. They intend to fish it for 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. You've just tapped into one of my biggest pet peeves in the fly fishing industry. And that is the new latest and greatest model. And everybody so desperate at the, you know, at the, you can just picture them at the whiteboard trying to figure out how they can pitch this new and improved model. And, and my argument, and I've been vocal about this before on the show is that I think what it does is it actually discredits their past model and it actually makes the customer go, Oh, well, maybe like, did I waste my money on that one? Should I wait until they get their ship? together <laughs> and can yeah. finally come out with like the final latest and greatest rod? Yeah, I think, you know, we were, a couple of things come to mind. We were very lucky that we had the chance to work with Tom for as long as we did. And we had a chance to design a couple of rods with him before he passed. We actually were working on designing a rod this Sunday before he passed on a Thursday. And I think a lot of the discussions we have with Tom around philosophies of rod building will always inform our decisions. Um, and we have made a couple of new rods. They they kind of follow his design parameters. And so they're informed, obviously, by his experience um, as a fishing guide and what he saw as the challenges that people faced. Um, I think we are devoted to classic rods in the sense that Tom always felt like rods that were good didn't become bad rods because the fish still swam in the water and ate bugs. And until that changed, until there was some seismic shift in when the game, those rods were still sweet, great rods. And I think the idea that we don't name our rods. So if you buy a graphite rod from us, it's an eight and a half foot, six weight, two piece. That's the same rod that we've made for 25 years. Now materials have changed and sometimes we have to change patterns with materials to, to adapt to those, but we're always changing a similar action or chasing a similar action, excuse me. And so I think for us, the challenge is how do we make things that are still interesting to people that already have one of our rods or that expand what they can do with a new rod? And so we've dived into that a little bit. Like we just made a seven weight rod that we think of as a trout seven weight. It's not a light eight. It's not a saltwater rod. It's a trout seven, which all of us grew up fishing. Now, most of the seven weights in the industry are really light bonefish rods. They're very stiff. And they, they aren't really for swimming flies and casting streamers and that kind of stuff. So there's a niche there that, that we're great at making that action rod. So we'd want to fill that niche and it kind of dovetails with what we already do. But I think you touched on this just a minute ago. I think I don't ever want our customers to feel like they made a mistake buying a five weight from us. And, and I think you can feel that way when there's a new rod. I think most people are in this environment now where planned obsolescence is a reality. We want the new iPhone. You know, we want the new thing that comes out every two years, a new TV, whatever it is. And, and we want people to buy really well, use it really hard and give it to their kids or their next generation. That's the idea. And, and we're going to do everything we can to support that and make it a reality for people. Yeah. And I think that, you know, because we're not chasing a numbers game, we don't need to we don't need to come up with a new model next year and replace our five weight just to resell all of our current customers, our new five weight. You know, we've got people that are passionate about what we do and in, in the action of Tom's rods and they'll call us up and they say, I own an eight foot four weight and I own, you know, a nine foot five weight. What's next? And then we talk about, Oh, maybe you need a six weight boat rod or you need, um, you know, you might want to try a bamboo rod or something. So we're not trying, if somebody calls up, we will never try to replace our existing rod. We will try to talk about other rods we make or, you know, just send them on their way for for a different rod that they're after. So we're not trying to um, redo our line each year, which does pose a problem. You know, you, you go to a fly fishing show in the winter and everybody's releasing their, you know, new color, new, new name, new rod. And we kind of are over in the corner, like, you know, still doing it. Um, but what I do take as flattering is that you watch some of the major rod companies and they're re-releasing their favorite rod from 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And they're coming back out and saying, it's a soft tip. It's a, you know, the action where you can feel it down to the handle when you cast at 35 feet. And Joel and I look at each other and just kind of smile. And we say, as companies left that and they started making, you know, a five weight that was really a six weight, or it's really stiff all the way up to the tip, just so that it can catch up on a tailing loop as you're casting. Um, we just smile and we say, you know what, we've made a great trout rod that has feel and accuracy and presentation all along. And we never chased 
the latest, greatest, stiffest. So we don't have to re-release our heritage rod. We've just always made that action. Yeah, I love it. Now you're both quite young and hip and smart. (laughs) But when I went to your website, that's when it really hit me that you guys are on top of things. You're no, you're, you're no dummies. So are you ever in a situation being young and ambitious where you feel a little bit of pressure, a little bit of FOMO, fear of missing out in the industry? I I don't. I think partly because I'll let Joel speak to this for himself, but for me, I, I didn't come from the fly fishing industry. You know, I was a person that was passionate about building with my hands, but I was actually working in a small private middle school teaching kids. And I loved doing that um, and needed a change. But I'm not chasing, you know, it's not like I used to work at the big rod company. And now everything I do for these last five years is just to try to elevate us up to that. You know, we live in Bozeman because we love Montana. We love the size of the city, even though it's growing. Um, but you know, I'm passionate. If it's a powder day on a Tuesday, I want to be able to go up to the mountain and ski till 11 and then come back down and build rods into the evening. And I don't want to scale up and have, you know, major investment behind us that's pressuring us to double our sales next year and then double again after that and start losing sight of quality over numbers. You know, so for, us, I, I really don't miss out. You know, we've met, made some great connections in the industry. And I think I won't tell you who, but we've sold a lot of rods to people that work for other rod companies to fish on their own. And I, I, I take that as the ultimate form of flattery that as someone's working for another rod company, they come over to us to find their next dry fly rod. And, and uh, so, no, I, I don't, I guess I don't really have much FOMO. Yeah, I don't think I do either. It's funny. I think we had a pretty clear idea of why we want to do this. Um, I, I worked in medical sales with with spine surgeons for about 15 years, completely different than what we do now. And I think Matt and I both were longing for something that was more tangible. And we were longing to make something that we could give people that would make them happy and that they look forward to getting. And it wasn't esoteric. It wasn't part of a corporate structure. It wasn't part of, you know, driving profit or, or, or being acquired or something like that. And so I think we take a lot of the things that we get from being in the fly fishing industry as bonuses, you know, but, but we don't, I, I couldn't imagine making a rod where I didn't know the person that was going to get it after having done this for five years, you know, that's all part of the experience for us. And I think what makes it meaningful is thinking that this rod is for the person I talked to about fishing for brook trout last week, you know, and that, that makes me work harder, I think. And it makes our work better too, having that connection to the customers. And I, I, like Matt said, I, I just think Bozeman checks so many things off our list, the quality of life, the ability to spend time with our families, not traveling, all those things are what we wanted. And it's all the things we have. And so I think maybe there's FOMO from people at big rod companies to, to do something like this that feels more like a startup or you're more involved maybe. But, but I wouldn't want to give it away for the things that come with being at a bigger company. Well, you just led me right to my next question, which is always tough to answer as a professional in, in an industry of any sort. Do you look at any of the major players in the rod building game and think that they're doing something terribly wrong? I think, I, I think to your point earlier for me, there's no one specific company, but I think this idea that I really will come back to the planned obsolescence, the fact that the only way to sell 20, 30,000 rods a year is to sell a model. And then two years later to discontinue that model and re-release a new version of the same rod. It just because it's chasing numbers. And I think it's ticking a box from a volume standpoint. I, and unfortunately, you know, we all, and Joel and I are building rods, so we're contributing to the problem. But we all go out on the rivers. You know, we we see the posts on Instagram of put-ins that are, you know, 20 boats deep. And, you know, we're all talking about fishing pressure and that kind of thing. And I, I just think the number of people fly fishing is pretty low in, in comparison to other sports like mountain biking or running or something like that. So just pumping out rods either you know, just for the sake of people rebuying rods or just getting a lot more people on the river is a challenge. You know, it's, it's hard to hit a bottom line and then also love the sport and love the pristine outdoors. That, that is the reason we all jumped into fly fishing. So I, I wish big companies would not make as many rods and not make as, as much gear and would focus on the quality of those pieces. But I don't know if that's possible. I have one thing to add to that. You know, I think one of the things they may be missing, um, and we've kind of come to 
realized this during the pandemic and some of the things that have just changed in our world is I think people are really looking for products that are connected to where they're from or connected to what they use them for and that they know people that make them. I, I think people are more into buying it at food markets that are vegetables from their region or, you know, they're just more into buying goods that they're connected to. And I think that as much as we talk about the challenges we face with our distribution, non-distribution model, you know, our sales model, things like that, I, I wonder if some of the big companies don't struggle with this idea of engagement or authenticity. And I think for Matt, that's always been a North Star for us is, is to be careful, not careful, but, but deliberate about how we make things who we sell them through and who we partner with, because we don't want to sacrifice that, which we see as a big benefit for us. Making rods in Bozeman, which is one of the greatest places in the world to fish, is a real advantage for us. And then also being able to say, we know the people that make them and they know us. Like they can call us and say, I just got a great fish on your rod. Or, you know, or, it, it's just a really nice connection. And I think in the future, that's going to be important to consumers, maybe more important than saying they have the lightest, fastest, shiniest. Yep, absolutely. Well, on the other side of things, let's just look at bamboo for a second. For a while there, wasn't it quite difficult getting bamboo? I think when Andy unfortunately died, mm -hmm. it did get tricky, right? What's the what's a little bit of the story there and how it affected both of you? Well, we were lucky. Was that before I, your time? Yeah, Andy it passed was. away, Andy Royer, before um, before we acquired the company. But um, we have a great guy, David Serafin, who we're, we were really fortunate that he lives 30 miles over the hill from us. And he goes over to the Tonkin region and hand selects the poles and brings back a shipping container of poles that he knows are straight enough, you know, cured enough, right diameter, right power fibers. Um, and then he, he and Tom became fast friends. And so we're, we're really fortunate to have a continuous supply right over the hill. We call up David and, um, he just comes by, you know, on a Tuesday and drops off some bundles at the front door and, uh, we keep on going. So we feel really, really fortunate to have a consistent high quality supply of bamboo. And correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but David worked with Andy as well, learned the business from Andy mm -hmm. before he passed. Yep. Yep. Yeah, a lot of the connections in, in China. Now, I don't know enough about bamboo rod building to ask too many specific questions, but I do know when we released our class that a lot of the questions were the same. They were primarily focused on dipping, so varnishing, dipping. I know the oven was a big question. Do you guys have all this stuff built out on a on a massive scale? Like, how big is your oven? Um, so the oven is something I went and looked at what a commercial oven costs. And uh, Joel and I are very, very bootstrappy. We were not going to pay for a, a commercial oven or that kind of thing. So we just I, I watched a couple of YouTube videos and bought some parts and went down to the local hardware store and got got the parts and built up an oven. But um, I'm so sorry, but our students are going to love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I think that's something about bamboo rod making. It's, you know, our binder, our string binder is something that Tom had the idea for and just built. So a lot of what we do in the shop, jigs and, you know, how we pound our cork on and things like that, we call them organisms because Tom invented them, but we're very homemade. You don't go down to the bamboo oven store and, and buy, buy an <laughs> oven. So, um, yeah. So it's, I think, but that's part of why people build is they want to mess around with how many sides does a rod have and do I, how do I heat treat and how do, what type of adhesives do I use? And, um, we find, and I'm sure you heard this in the class, April, that people are vehement about their method and they think that, you know, their method is the only way that will catch fish or keep the world spinning. Uh, and Tom had a bit of a different approach. He, he had his method, um, but he very much just kind of threw his hands in the air and said, there's, there's many ways to go about this. There's, you know, that rod will be a great casting rod and mine will be built my way and also be a great casting rod. So he didn't get into that turf war on, on method. Yeah. My dad's a luthier. So he builds guitars and this is all just same day, different story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, one of the other things, you know, I was looking at whenever you sell something, you look at the number one objection and our number one objection with the class was materials. People were worried that they couldn't get the materials in the country, you know, whichever country they were in. Um, and I will admit in our final class, we, even though Bob tells everybody what they need throughout the class, we um, include a additional resources list of where to buy materials. 
and they're all over the place. Have you thought about consolidating that and making it easier for other rod builders so they can come to you for everything? So I think what we've done instead of some of those things we don't produce, you know, we, we don't have a machine shop that's going to make real seat hardware, but we have tried to have more and more parts. It's kind of an ongoing thing in the shop as a one-stop shop. And we do that with the columns. So we have a lot of customers that um, will come over to pick up a, a mill from us and we will have columns ready in the shop on the floor that they can also load in the truck and take home. Um, we do carry some of Joel Lemke's real seat hardware and make some inserts to fit it. We keep some snake brand guides in the shop. So not on a massive level, but also bamboo rod building is such a small community. Uh, but if, when people reach out to us, we'll sell them cork out of our bins or we'll pull guides out of our guide sets to give to them and, and, and do that. So we haven't made it official, but we, we try to work with each person and when they need it, you know, provide those parts. Why is varnishing so intimidating or dipping so intimidating? I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I don't, I guess I don't see what's so scary about it. And maybe it's because we work with all kinds of coatings all day long and it's just not a big deal. You know, keep your work surface clean, keep your hands clean, keep your, your material fresh that you're using, whether it's varnish or any other kind of coating and take your time. But it's it's really not as scary. I think it's one of those things that's taken on a little bit of a of a myth. Well I do think there's there's time involved. I think there's more of a there's more of a, a little bit of a, a barrier to entry there. Like you have to figure out a tank and you have to figure out a motor and things like that. I think in 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 my defense, I'm not nearly as handy as Matt. And so Matt has bid, built a wooden drift boat. He's familiar with varnishes for working on the boat and things like that. I'm not and so, you know, Tom had that kind of stuff set up, but I think much like the oven, it's not hard to find a good description of a dipping tank and then find out a way to make it work for you. I think people get worried maybe more about the time involved. You get to let it sit for a while to cure. And um, that's where there's lots of different finishes for bamboo rods, all of which seem to work pretty well. We use varnish mostly because we think it's the prettiest and the most traditional, but we see people that use true oil and Gorilla Glue and all different kinds of finishes. And the rods, I think, turn out really nice. And I'm sure they fish great. And so they're all alternatives. And I think to Gorilla point, Glue we, finish? We see, yeah. Well, it, 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 it's used to, to both glue the rod and coat it. Yeah, there's a small uh, a small group of people that are way into taking Gorilla Glue. They put it on – I think there's a YouTube video that says how many times you're supposed to fold the paper towel and then the amount – the number of dabs of Gorilla Glue and then you wipe it on the blank until it's stretched thin and then you put your next dabs on. And we just smile because it, it's something – you know, if somebody's kicking around in the winter instead of fly tying and they're building bamboo rods, like that's awesome. Play with that. But we are very traditional with our with our spar varnish just because Tom wanted his rods to look a certain way. So we build all of them the same way. But I think it's great. I think it's fun that people play around with all that stuff. You know, it's funny looking back, I'm just thinking of some of the conversations dad and I have had in his workshop and he swears that Stradivarius, the violin maker, he believes that the secret to his violins was in the varnish. And he's got this whole philosophy behind why the sound and the varnish work so well together. Yeah. So one example, if you, you know, if you haven't picked up on it, Tom was particular about quality and time and people ask us, our current bamboo wait time is between a year and 18 months. If you order a rod from us, um, just because of the, partly the time we take, but one example is Tom didn't want to varnish the wraps in the blank at the same time because it didn't have a crisp enough line. And so we will dip the blank four times in the varnish and then put it in a cabinet for 30 days just to cure, just to sit and do its thing. And then after 30 days, we pull it back out, buff, polish it, and then wrap the guides on. And then Joel will spend another four to six weeks coating just the thread wraps with varnish. So you could have done it all at once. And Tom added an extra, sometimes two months to the production of the rod to do it his way. And it's because aesthetically he wanted to look just so. And so when you cast our rods, I think your dad would appreciate and say, can't really tell you why they cast the way Tom designed them, but they do have Tom's feel. And I think it's probably the sum of all of those little steps that that add up to do something. Are there any other quirks that might surprise experienced builders to find out about what you guys do there or what Tom did? I mean, I think one thing that's a little scary is 
or when we began building rods is that so Tom drills each ring of cork to match the taper of the blank and then had a cork pounder to glue each of those rings in perfect contact with the blank. So instead of a pre-made handle that's been reamed out and can have some wiggle and play in it, um, he wanted that when the line interfaced through the guides down the blank to the handle to your hand, he wanted that cork, each cork to be perfectly fit to the blank. And then we shape each handle just on the lathe with sandpaper. So no CNC machinery or anything like that. We're just, I sit on Mondays and Tuesdays and shape the handles. And um, it takes an incredible amount of time, but I think it's another little piece that goes into why our rods cost a bit more than some of the mass market rods, which, you know, it's those time, you know, those time consuming steps and then the materials that we use. But he would say that would make a, a rod that just felt better in your hand. At the end of the rod, as we're finishing things, we do almost everything under magnification. So we wear jeweler's loops. And so we're checking for very, very small defects. We're sanding with up to 10,000 grit paper. And when we coat, we coat usually four to six times. So we're actually coating and sanding between each coat, looking for a stronger lamellar finish that's more flat, more uniform, and prettier. And that, like Matt said with bamboo, that just takes a lot more time than doing one to two coats and moving it. Um, and that has to do just with Tom's process, you know, it's just more time demanding, but we think it ends up with a better product at the end. Oh, I just had a random question. Hmm? When you guys are in between sandings, do you just use rubbing alcohol to get the, the, um, best off? Yeah. I think the thing we buy the most of is alcohol pads and paper towels, unfortunately talking about environmentalism, but (laughs) yes, but we will, we'll remove the dust. If there is any, we'll remove the dust with um, with alcohol, or I sometimes just swipe it off with my finger. I'll tell you why I'm asking. I just remembered it's all flooding back to me. When I was when I had bought my first house, I redid the kitchen and I stripped all my cupboards with my dad to restain them. And stripping is obviously a nightmare when Might it's as an well entire get kitchen. New <laughs> yeah, may as well, especially when it's like a house from the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so we stripped everything. But in between sanding, dad showed me with this rubbing alcohol or whatever it was that the the dust basically vanished. It disappeared. How does that work? Yeah. So we use, um, yeah, isopropyl alcohol and you have to, we know our little hardware store that has a higher percent alcohol than the stuff that you can get down at at the Home Depot. Um, But it it really just using a lint-free cloth. So that's the other thing we had to find paper towels that didn't shed their little fibers. and the alcohol will will help get rid of um, any oils on your hands, any residue from the tools you were using, um, and will clean the surface just back to um, square one, so that the varnish or the alcohol or, or the coating will adhere better. Um, we do use alcohol a lot during on the graphite rods, but actually on the varnish, we will often just use a, a, a lint-free rag and water, and then go back to back with it because we don't want to soften that varnish. So it's a fine line between when we'll use alcohol and sometimes we don't. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, My last real big question before I turn the mic over to you guys with your questions is what is the hardest part about rod building for someone who's just starting to get into it? I think that just, I, I don't think there's anything that's hard. You know, if, if you can tie flies, if you're able to follow a recipe and we live in a golden age, I mean, I remember learning to tie flies and I had to go take a class at the fly shop. And then the next time I could learn more about it was when I went back down on the Wednesday night and I sat at the fly shop and then I learned how to do it. And nowadays, you know, when I tie tie flies, I've got a giant monitor sitting in my, in my den and I'm sitting here and and I press play on YouTube and I look up, you know, this new fly and find the variation I want to do. And I tie it right in front of the monitor. I think with rod building, you know, you can take a tablet out to your um, workshop and pretty much watch someone do each step. And I think for me, I'm such a visual learner that I, I if you can just find videos of each step, um, they're pretty easy to follow. If, you know, it sounds like if, if you're re- finishing cabinetry and I know, you know, you're great with tying flies that plays into wrapping a lot, you could easily build a rod. And then it's just about having the right tooling to do it with. Yeah, I think one of the challenges, I think you already touched on it a little bit, but I think it's part of it's finding all the parts. And I think finding a really good blank is a challenge. 
you know, find the blank that's the action you want to build. You know, I, I think that could be a challenge. Well, before we wrap it up, is there anything that you guys would like to add or to ask me? I, I think one, one question I'd have is thinking about action, you know, because we've talked a lot about Tom's action is that fine tip, you know, even rate of taper back to the handle and that kind of flex when you're fishing, not necessarily like an eight or a nine weight or something big in the salt, but what do you, how do you like a rod to bend or what, what type of action do you prefer when you're casting for trout? It's funny. I was fishing bamboo all weekend, so I'm ready for this question. I, and the rod I was fishing was admittedly too heavy for me and clunky, but it cast lasers and I could cast it almost as far as a graphite rod. And it was actually a pretty sloppy rod. So I'm a little surprised by it, but I don't like feeling clunky. Whereas when I fish any of my, my Bob clay rods or even some of my vintage rods, they're seamless. But as soon as I really have that traditional brass ferrule, um, which of course we don't have with our, any of the spliced rods, I really judge the rod and how clunky it feels in and around those spots. If I feel like I'm casting an eight weight down here and a four weight up here, I'm usually not that, um, I'm usually not that impressed. We'll just, I guess, leave it there. Nice. What about you? I mean, I think we're, we're suckers for, you know, we went out, Joel, uh, Joel and I went out to meet Tom and Jerry the first time and Tom wheeled over to the door and then they let us go with a bunch of rods out in the driveway and we started casting. And I think we looked at each other and went, holy shit, I, I didn't know a rod could cast like this, you know? And so I think I've become a convert to Tom's action kind of wholesale. I used to have some softer rods like that, that, um, you know, flex deeper down towards the butt. Uh, but I also had some pretty stiff rods too, you know, for, you know, out of the drift boat and that kind of thing. But I, I think now I want a rod all the way into my saltwater rods that if I cast and pause on the back cast and I feel it really load up and then give me that response forward. I, I mean, that's all for me. I think for me, and Matt kind of talked about it. I really don't want to pick up a rod and think about the butt or the tip or the way they work together. I want to pick up a rod and just feel like it's all unified and kind of an extension of what I want. And, and I think that Tom used to talk about this a lot and we still do. I, I just focus a lot on what I functionally use a rod for. I, I don't cast 70 feet a lot when I'm trout fishing. You know, I, I'm usually 20 to 50. So I want rods that are going to feel good close that I can step on a little bit if I need to, they can handle a little bit of wind, but are really smooth. And that's kind of how I feel it. Like you're talking about ferals. Like I don't want to feel a lot of feral stoppage if it's a four or two or whatever. I want to feel like everything's harmonic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what kind of ferals do you guys use? We use a, a, a truncated, um, a truncated uh, feral from Classic Sporting. So I think I think Bob might use uh, when he has used ferals has, has used those. But they're nickel silver and they're a little bit shorter. Um, and we usually build two-piece rods. We've built some three-piece rods and played around with that. We actually have a one-piece rod on the floor in the shop that we're playing around with for that idea of throwing ferals out the window. And um, But yeah, we like to tinker and play around with different stuff. We, I actually ended up sending out a cameraman back up to Bob's to film an almost two-hour session on his composite ferals. Mm -hmm. What's the deal with that? I didn't realize that Bob, that was kind of Bob's thing. Did they not exist before Bob? Like what's the story with composite ferals? I, I don't know that I can speak to the history of them, but, I, but I, I know that he's done quite a bit of work perfecting it for his rods. And I know he does a lot of splice rods as well. I don't think that he's using any of the metal ferals anymore. And, and I've cast both of those rods from him. And I actually like the composite. I, I don't know. I just, that model that I cast, I quite liked it, but he builds the ferrule on the rod as I understand it. And so I think that's a little bit different process. Um, and maybe intimidating for some makers. We haven't chased it just because we're so traditional. And I think in shorter rods, we tend to make a little bit shorter rods with bamboo. I think the metal ferrule works pretty well. Yeah, we we made it an, an add-on because it's not to be taken lightly. It is. It's almost two hours. It can be intimidating, but it's super cool. And as we've been playing around with a with a trout spay rod of our own out of bamboo. I think that's one of the things we worry about a little bit with the nickel silver. People talk about the ovaling that, you know, you can, you can wear out a feral and, and kind of ovalize a little bit and then have some slop in it. We haven't found that yet. Um, but I bet that's why Bob really is, is such an adherent to the, 
the spliced rods or the composites, they, they take that force of the spay cast, um, it, which is really different than like Joel says with a trout mm-hmm. rod casting 30 to 50 feet. It, it's not really a concern. Yeah, I think, the, I think the forces are different. And I want to talk to just one, one real quick thing. Matt was talking about bamboo uh, ferals. We do a different ferrule on our graphite and fiberglass rods. That's a spigot ferrule. And, and Tom felt like that was a superior joint because it preserves the taper of the blank. Whereas sleeve ferrules, which you see most of the time now, you actually reverse taper the male to the ferrule. So you design around the overlap of material you get in a sleeve. Whereas with a spigot, you're actually continuing the taper of the blank. But, but to Matt's point earlier, a spigot ferrule for us takes about three days. And it's about 20 minutes in a production facility to make a sleeve overbutt. Wow. Well, they're definitely quality rods. Before I let you both go to enjoy your night, is there anything that you would like to add that I haven't asked? I have a lot of questions about Tom, but I don't feel it's right to ask mm-hmm. them. Yeah, is there I mean, anything it, that I should that I should be asking or that he would want us to know? You know, I I think that I, I think that Tom would say, and one of the knocks, you know, we our rods at, at Fourteen ninety five. You know, the first thing someone's going to say is, "Oh, it's too expensive." You know, I can go down. You know, I can buy a two hundred dollar rod and catch fish. And every one of us, all three of us on here, and every one of us could definitely go buy. You know, an inexpensive rod and catch fish. And I think people should. But Tom, Tom, you know, he had this thing that you know everybody should own a piece of outdoor gear, whether it's a side-by-side shotgun or a fly rod or Tom liked golf, you know, but having one great piece of equipment that you really care for and that it really makes for a special time, whether it's on the water or in the field or whatever you're doing is important. And if, if you love these sports, I, I think it's something, you know, Tom would, would really want people to invest in that. And, and so, um, I think it's one thing he said over and over. I remember, a gentleman came into his bedroom and he was laying in the bed and he had the glasses on and the guy had a bamboo rod that was pretty beat up and he held it out in front of Tom and Tom got a little teary eyed and he said, I love that you're out using this and you not, you're not just waiting for me to die so that it goes up in value. You're going out and you're using it. And so our philosophy and Tom's philosophy is buy it right, buy it once, but go out and use it. You know, don't store it away in a closet. Well, I'm going to wrap it up on that note. Thank you so much to both of you for making the time to come on the show. And hopefully when uh, these restrictions lift, we can actually come by and come see the factory. Can people come see the factory? For sure. Yeah, we are open door. People can come through, cast rods, hang out, watch how rods are built. Yeah, we're we're small. There's just a couple of us. So for sure, come by and visit. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv oh that's awesome don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment